0: Father, we have wild hearts. This is not something we are denying. We aren't covering it up. We have a heart problem. We have a secret motive to eye our name and all we do. We hunger and hunt after man's approval and applause. We would rather be seen of men than seen of you. We don't need you to tame our hearts. We need you to give us a new heart. We are living in the already, but the not yet. We face the tension of hating sin, but at times loving it too. Our sins are crucified, but never fully mortified. Even our prayers are stained with sin. So we repent of our repentance. We need even our penitential tears washed in the blood of Christ. Of all hypocrites, grant that we may not be evangelical hypocrites who sin more freely because grace abounds, who love expository preaching and theological singing but live unholily, who say amen but whose private life would make others say, oh my. We excuse our sin of anger by blaming it on others' slowness. We excuse our sin of gossip by saying we were just venting. We excuse our neglect of your word by saying we were too busy. See, Lord, we have a heart problem, and it will stay that way. Unless your word does what your word does. We need you to go to work in us. We need you to slice us and dice us to remove the affections for sin. We need your word to melt us that we might be molded into the image of your dear son. Church, before I end this prayer and you lift your heads, before that, would you pray this silently? God, my heart is an idol factory. Reveal my heart's idols today. Show me an idol and I will crush it. Show me a sin and I will repent of it. Show me mercy and I will cling to it. Father, this is not merely the prayer of the sheep in this room. This is also the prayer of the shepherds in this room. This is our corporate prayer. Amen. The church is on dangerously good terms with the world. This passage summarized in one sentence. The church is on dangerously good terms with the world. That's true in this text, and that's true in our day. Jesus made a people for his own name in Corinth. He he called them, he redeemed them, he set them apart. They were his people in that big, fun, exciting, wealthy city. They were in the city, but they belonged to the Messiah. They were not Corinth citizens, they were the Messiah's people. He wanted them to live out the gospel in that pagan environment. They were never to fit in. They were always to stand out. They were in Corinth. But they shouldn't fit in Corinth. They should misfit in Corinth. They were supposed to be the Messiah's misfits. Always out of place in the culture but always at home in the corporate gathering. Here's how the text breaks down. The Messiah's misfits fitting in perfectly, verses 8 through 13. The Messiah's misfits facing fatherly correction, verses 14 through 21. The Messiah's misfits fitting in perfectly. The Messiah's misfits facing fatherly correction. To demonstrate that the Messiah's misfits are fitting in perfectly with Corinth... Paul employs some sanctified spiritual sarcasm. He's not a little bit sarcastic. He's a lot of bit sarcastic. And some people are shocked by sarcasm in the Bible. They think the word of God should only contain careful, logical arguments. However, there are appropriate times for heavy irony and stark sarcasm. This is not Paul's main way of teaching, but he deploys it here. To those who read this text and come away saying, this is just plain ridicule. Paul is taking this too far. I respond, I don't need to rescue Paul from his own words. God inspired it and preserved it so you don't need to psychoanalyze it. But Paul's a prick. Well, he's an inspired prick. (laughs) Submit to the inspiration of Scripture. Don't stand over it. Stand under it. It's time for us to unpack this brilliant example of apostolic sarcasm. Paul starts by saying to the church, you are fitting in well in Corinth. You are excelling in Corinth. You're not a misfit in Corinth. They love you. The city that hates your Christ somehow loves you. Verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. The Corinthian Christians are sitting on top of the world. They regard themselves as rulers. They have all they want. The Greek phrase for all you want speaks of being full. Like they gorge themselves at a buffet. That was what life was like for them. Sitting at a buffet, stuffing their mouths with the most delicious cuisine. Their manner of life was characterized by feeding the flesh, not starving it. They are comfortable. They are at ease. They enjoy Corinth's dishes. They are full. But they aren't just full of food and full of pleasures. They are also full of themselves. They are behaving like self-assured rich people who couldn't see their own spiritual poverty. They have a bloated self-importance. They are smug, success-oriented. Paul says, you've come to reign without us. You didn't need our theology to reach your position in Corinth. You didn't need our counsel. You didn't need our instructions on living a holy life. You're living like kings. I mean, just look at your clothes. Is that Gucci? I like that Louis Vuitton bag. Are those heels, do they have the red bottoms? Wow, you've, you've really arrived. Paul is mocking them. You're walking around Corinth like rock stars, like real estate moguls. You are fitting in with the upper crust of Corinth. Pagans admire you. Pagans want to be you. But I'm wondering if this is what Jesus intended for his church. Hear the sarcasm. Paul says, if we could have been where you are, then we would have been kings as well. But we aren't anywhere close to kings. Then Paul drops the hammer. And would That you did reign. In other words, you are not reigning. You are living in some kind of illusion. The Corinthians were feeling confident and fulfilled, not because of their riches in Christ, but because of their worldly riches. And Paul calls them back to reality. He reveals their inflated view of themselves. He pops the balloon, and their hot air comes spewing out. They have misplaced boasting. Which leads us to this truth. By looking at the Corinthians, you would get the idea that the Christian life is one of ease and enjoyment. By looking at the Corinthians, you would get the idea that the Christian life is one of ease and enjoyment. They imbibed the extravagance and ease of their culture. They surrendered their peculiarness to the pagan society. Maybe, just maybe, they had an early form of God wants you to have victory. God wants you to succeed. No one is limiting you but yourself. God is for you. God wants you to win. They had bought into some form of the prosperity gospel. That God's people have already arrived and are already reigning. They become secular in their notions of glory. Adopted a sub-Christian theology that permits worldly desires. Verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world. To angels and to men. Paul will illustrate the vast difference in the the Corinthians approach to life and the apostles approach to life. The way you are viewing life is, is incorrect Following Jesus doesn't lead to ease and extravagance. You need an example, just look at us. Look at the apostles. See the indignity to which we are exposed. We are men condemned to death and hated by the world. The word spectacle here was a very familiar word in the ancient culture. It's theatron, where we get our word theater. This is referring to what was called the Roman spectacle. The Romans used to do some serious pomp and circumstance. They were big on celebrations and parades, especially after a war. Roman generals and their men would go off to war, deliver an absolute beatdown, and then come back. To celebrate, they would stage splendid parades like an NBA championship parade or a World Series parade. They marched through the streets and people on the side scream and cheer and chant. They were marching the streets with the equivalent of a Macy Day Parade floats. At the end of the parade line would always be POWs, prisoners of war, from their recent victory. These men would be in shackles and chains and ropes. They were paraded before their enemies, defeated and disgraced. These spectacles were spit upon hit with objects, jeered, hated, then marched into a coliseum to be devoured by lions. These stadiums, public theaters, amphitheaters were filled with citizens. And Paul says, we are like the people carted into the Colosseum to be devoured by wild animals. That's how Corinth views us. That's how the world views us. We are publicly humiliated and shamed on the regular. It happens before men and angels. Why are we beat down and you're being applauded? Why are we being threatened with lions and you are wearing lion fur? Why are we destined for the arena, but you are destined for elite status in the city? They mock, ridicule, lampoon us. Why do they praise, high five, and respect you? It's bitter irony. It's biting irony. You're being paraded through Corinth like Egyptian kings sitting on beds carried by servants below. You're at the front of the line. We're at the back of the line. We live in utter humiliation. You live in utter luxury. We are kicked and you are kissed. You are on dangerously good terms with the world. Church, You don't want the culture's kisses. You want the kiss of God. Why does your pagan culture treat you so differently than it treated Jesus and all his previous followers? Why does your pagan culture treat you so differently than it treated Jesus and all his previous followers? Why is your life not marked by this hostile opposition that seems to mark the life of everyone who followed Jesus in the Bible? There's a disconnect somewhere. You must evaluate your Christianity using Pauline, not Corinthian criteria. Look at verse 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held in, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. The we is emphatic three times, we, we, we. Paul juxtaposed his life following Christ with their life following Christ, and there was a vast difference. Hear the ridicule. We are fools. You are wise. We are weak. You are strong. We are despised. You are held in honor. This verse is dripping with irony. Why does Corinth view us as enemies and view you as friends? They are giving you awards. They are giving us arenas. You are recipients of certain honors. We are recipients of certain whips. Corinth stands when you walk into the room. They curse when we walk into the room. To be clear... I am not saying your life needs to look exactly like Paul's. I'm saying if you are not facing opposition for the gospel, then you are not being loud enough. Men, why do pagans at your job feel no threat or conviction when you are around Ladies, why is it that women who have obvious, unconfessed sin in their life like to hang out with you? Kids, following Jesus means you will not be popular in your class. Business owner, do you lose any customers, any customers, for taking a stand for Christ? Social media fiend. How is it that you are connected online with so many Christ deniers, yet they never push back? Something is wrong when a world that hated your Christ loves you. The Roman spectacle isn't the only one we should be thinking about, we should also be mindful of the Christ spectacle. He was also paraded before his enemies, defeated and disgraced. He was spit upon, hit with objects, jeered, hated, then marched, not to a coliseum, but to a cross. Men and angels beheld the scene. On that cross, Jesus bore the penalty for our sin. The least you could do is bear reproach for following him. And I don't care what churches try to portray It is never the cool, hip thing to follow Jesus Christ. A coffee shop in your lobby doesn't erase the disgrace. A gifted musician with torn jeans and $400 sneakers will never remove the reproach. You need to stop selling Christianity like it's the cool thing to do. No, I will tell you, non-Christian, if you follow this Christ, it may get you killed. Verse 11, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. Paul effectively says, as I write these words, my stomach is growling, my mouth is dry. Church, remember in verse eight where it said you have everything, in the Greek you are full. You have a a feast of food stuffed into you. Paul draws a comparison here. We are starving. You are replete, rich, reigning, and we can't even eke out a living. All these other followers of Jesus, because they are following him, they are socially and economically a disadvantaged people, but somehow you've found a way around that? I look homeless, I'm miserably clad, and you're finely dressed? You are living like kings. We are living like paupers. We follow Christ and it leads us to imprisonments, floggings, and lashings. We are vagabonds for Christ. No place to call home in this world. We are running and you are reigning. What's going on? Our life on earth looked like Jesus' life on earth. Yours looks like Pilate's. Verse 12, and we labor working with our hands, our own hands. This picture's Paul bent over a workbench like a slave. In fact, he labored alongside slaves. He's working himself to exhaustion. The Greeks despised manual labor, manual labor was demeaning and beneath the dignity of any true teacher or philosopher. And the fact that Paul was a part time teacher wouldn't have had the approval of Corinth. They would have considered him a joke. He couldn't support himself with his teaching. The Greco Roman world viewed manual labor as fit only for slaves. Look at verse 12b. When reviled, how do you respond, Paul? We bless. When persecuted, We endure. When slandered. We entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world. The refuse of all things. He's highlighting the ill treatment the apostles and other Christians regularly receive. They endure social ostracism. Not social praise. They are regularly insulted and abused. And he gives a catalog of the afflictions. Paul didn't expect people who hate God to compliment him. Even when it was difficult, Paul was faithful. When they defamed him, he famed Jesus. He answered kindly to their scorn, responding like Jesus did to their cursings. The Corinthians could never respond like Jesus Because they never faced scorn. The text says, We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Here's the word picture there. We are the muck that you scrape off the bottom of your shoe. We are the filthy residue of trash, dirt, mud, excrement. We are the garbage of the world, not the glee. Let's understand, Paul is not announcing some strange way to follow Christ. This is the way. Paul is not announcing some strange way to follow Christ. This is the way. It is narrow and scarcely traveled. Don't misunderstand this passage. Paul is not playing a victim card or eliciting pity. He's simply under no illusions about the place reserved for him in the world. The Corinthians were living under a worldly illusion that you can follow Christ and still be admired by the world who killed him. Paul had no such illusions. Remaining loyal to the gospel will not bring worldly fame or success. It does not earn an attaboy from the world. Jesus said this in John 15. When the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Could you imagine Jesus teaching that and then someone raising their hand? But Jesus, they all love me. That's not an option. You can't create your own categories. Don't feel shocked or scandalized when you suffer for following Christ. What's unusual is not that we suffer. But when we suffer, we do not become bitter or angry. We suffer well. We suffer patiently. We don't lose hope. Paul experiences rejection from the world and he keeps going. They were not taking away from him anything he expected to keep in this world. Sometimes suffering will be less intense than others. It will vary from age to age and country to country. But proclaiming the gospel always invites opposition. You say, Kyle... I want to have Christ, but not be viewed as a misfit. I want to go to church and be committed, but not be viewed as a freak. Jesus doesn't give those options. Non-Christians, this is your moment of truth. Do you want Corinth or Christ? Do you want the applause of men or the redemption of Christ? God has graciously Giving you another opportunity to repent and submit to the lordship of Christ. This may be your last hour. Turn to Christ. Look and live. Take hell on earth now. For the glories of heaven later. There is no hell the world can put you through that compares to God's hell. That hell is eternal. The the hell you may go through on earth is, is temporal. There is joy and comfort in being the Messiah's misfit. Christian, do you feel like a misfit? This is by divine design. Do you feel like a misfit? This is by divine design. God called Israel a nation. Tiny nation, unimpressive nation. God called Israel and the Old Testament to be a holy, distinct people, misfits among the nations. These people were to reflect the holiness of God, and from Israel to us, we've wanted to shake off our misfitness. Paul doesn't do it in the text. Paul embraces the fact that he's the Messiah's misfit. Your your college class will be filled with atheists. Students in your middle and high school will read books and watch movies and do weekend things that are Corinthian. Your biological family thinks you are nuts for following this Christ. You go and labor among the Corinthians week after week. And you so often feel like you don't belong. Like you're just out of place. Beloved, home is calling, and you're going to fit perfectly there. But until then, you are the Messiah's misfit for a reason. He deployed you at that job, in that mom's group, in that subdivision to bring the gospel to people that are blinded by Satan. Christ keeps his misfits. He will bring you home. You remain faithful until he does. Here's something that will help. Paul became scum for Christ, but Christ became sin for Paul. Paul became scum for Christ, but Christ became sin for Paul. You may become a lot of things for Christ, but don't ever forget what he became for you. He took the wrath of God reserved for you. He took your place. You will never face the penalty for your sin. For that was laid on Christ. It is a privilege to suffer for the Christ who suffered for us. It is an honor to bear reproach for the Christ who bore the ultimate reproach for us. When we suffer, we share in his suffering. And you say, Kyle, this text is just lighting me up. I caved last week. I chickened out. Like Peter, I ran from scorn and denied I knew Christ. What do you have for me, Kyle? I would just remind you, friend, of the fish dinner that Jesus provides on the shore for Peter's. It is there that he reminds you Your salvation doesn't rest on how well you bear the scorn. It rests on how well I bore the scorn. See, Christ is the ultimate misfit. The sinless one living among sinners. He lived his identity as a misfit perfectly so that when you fail to live yours, you can rest in his work alone. The Messiah's misfits fitting in perfectly, verses 8 through 13, the Messiah's misfits facing fatherly correction, verses 14 through 21. Verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved, notice this word, children. Paul is not intending to cause them pain or embarrassment or to make them feel unworthy. Shame is not the ultimate goal. He's not trying to make them feel rotten. Notice, there is no more a sarcastic tone, but now a gentle, soothing tone. Verses 8 through 13, sarcastic. Verses 14 through 21, tender and personal. You see here Paul's pastoral care in action. His pastoral and parental heart going to work. Father language fills the section. He is a spiritual father to them. They came to faith under his preaching three to five years ago when he planted the church. Paul explains, just as a father might use hard words to admonish his wayward son, so Paul admonishes them. The word admonish means to warn, uh, to help one avoid some error. Verse 15, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In this culture, a child had tutors. They would supervise the life and morals of the child. They functioned as guardians and overseers. These are the guides that Paul refers to. Usually it was a trusted slave put in charge of the child, trusted with the care and protection of the child. Uh, the, the child may have more than one. In fact, he could have quite a few. They were like nannies and butlers to the small one. They taught him different things. He may go to one guide for language and another guide for developing a work, work ethic. Different teachers held supervision in different areas. Another name for guides would be pedagogues. Pedagogues. They held a teaching position in the child's life. A a child had many pedagogues. Paul says, church at Corinth, you've had countless pedagogues. The word countless is actually a number. It's 10,000 in the Greek language. You have 10,000 pedagogues. Now, did Paul count them? No. It's such an extremely high number, that's that's why the translators here go with countless. It refers to countless numbers of people. These pedagogues, were a lot of things, but they were not fathers. You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul is their spiritual father. Many pedagogues, but only one father. Now, this wasn't news to them. Paul didn't say, I am your father, and then they fell, you know, they shook, they were surprised. They knew he wasn't talking about biological father. But, but spiritually, God chose Paul to be the human vessel to bring them into the kingdom. Now, let's pause here and correct a common error. Paul never commanded them to call him father. Roman Catholics and the Catholic lights, Anglicans, missed the boat here. This is not a formal role in the church. Paul does not hold the role of father in the church No one does that. In Matthew 23, 9, Jesus said, don't call anybody father, but God the Father. So this is talking about a spiritual father, not an office in the church. And I think Paul is rebuking these false teachers, these pedagogues for telling the Corinthians they could have good standing with the world and be faithful to Christ. And Paul says, no. Verse 16, I urge you then be imitators of me. Stop imitating them. These false teachers. Be imitators of me. Imitate, mimites, from which we get our word mimic. The church was to mimic Paul. The church was not to mechanically replicate Paul's routine. He wakes up at this time, brushes his teeth at this time, goes to bed at this time, mimic it to a T. No. This is talking about his manner of life. Paul lived a gospel-centered life, full of gospel integrity. His walk was impeccable. He walked his talk. He was not a hypocrite. There was consistency between his life and his preaching. He spoke one and and lived it. He was willing to suffer and they should follow his example, mimic him and be willing to suffer. He was willing to be counted a fool for Christ. They should follow him, mimic him and be willing to be counted fools in Corinth for Christ. And by the way, this is not a prideful statement from Paul. Imitate me. It could come off that way, right? If I told all of you, I want you to leave and and really just be just like me, okay? Just imitate me. That can come off as a bit, you know, just weird. I don't think he's saying I'm perfect. He does sin. He's not Jesus. Jesus never repented, never once. He never had to. So, when you're not like Jesus, be like Paul and repent. Could you say this to someone? Imitate my life. Are you living a life that is worthy of gospel emulation? Do you need to make any changes in the example that you provide? Verse 17. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Let's stop there. Paul led Timothy to Christ, and then Timothy went on gospel excursions with Paul. In fact, Timothy was present when Paul first brought the gospel to Corinth. Timothy's mother was a Christian, but his father was not. And Paul became a bit of a spiritual father to Timothy. Paul was an older man by this point. Timothy was maybe late 20s, early 30s, and Paul is quite comfortable with young Timothy's capabilities. So he sends Timothy to Corinth to help disciple the church in his absence. He sent a, a little Paul to them, a little mini-me. What was Timothy to do? Verse 17b. To remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul is not a university lecturer who is interested only in education in the narrow cognitive sense. Paul goes beyond that. He's not sending Timothy to simply lay out doctrine, but also to remind them of a way of life. Doctrine and ethics go hand in hand. Uh, Discipleship is a combination of doctrine and practice. Doctrine, what I teach everywhere... And practice my way of life. Creed and conduct, belief and behavior. I'm not seeking anything novel in you, Paul says. This is in all the churches. Paul is never content to give only theology. Let me say that again Paul is never content to give only theology, for he applies theology to behavior. Right thinking is simply not enough. It must be accompanied by right living. Children, little children learn by example first and then explanation. What they see first and then what they hear. Holy doctrine should always be adorned with a holy life. Thomas Brooks says a preacher's life should be a commentary on his doctrine. And so it was with Paul. Verse 18. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. This church had a had a serious problem with pride and self will. That's evident not only here but throughout the whole book. They're they're puffed up like like a blowfish. They rebelled against Paul's apostleship and had little regard for his teaching and little respect for his authority. And this is what they were saying, he ain't coming. He ain't coming. They think Paul will not come and reprove them. This letter is read in the corporate gathering. So whoever this sum were, they're being publicly called out. They were a small number of people that virtually shaped the opinion of, of everyone. They had nothing to gain from adherence to Paul and nothing to fear for, from opposing him. So they believe. So Paul reaffirms his attention to visit. The best way to humble a prideful mouth is to show up. Verse 19. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Notice Paul couches his promise to visit in the will of God. Paul doesn't view himself as a free agent, he is God's agent. He is subject to the Lord's direction. R.C. Sproul says in Paul's absence from Corinth, some of the believers there were calling into question his apostleship based on his apparent weakness. Humility is an order and Paul intends to bring it. I'm going to expose their lack of power. Paul is effect- effectively saying he's going to call their bluff. He's going to find out if they're all hat and no cattle. You know, that's a Texas idiom. They're all had and no kattam. Not a lot of Texas people from here, obviously. (laughs) Verse 20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. They talked a big game. They're hiding behind a wall of words. Anyone can use words to persuade the naive. Talk is cheap. D.A. Carson said Paul will expose them for the empty religious windbags that they are. Verse 21. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, is this trash talking? <laughs> like You're going to come walking over here, but you're going to be limping back. That's what my mama used to tell me all the time. <laughs> you come walking over here, you'll be limping back. The, the pastoral gloves come off, and it seems like the boxing gloves go on. The, the, the rod, this, this staff, this stick, is what children were spanked with. If Paul needs to come in like Jesus cleansing the temple, he will. The idea is, what would you like me to do? I will respond. How I respond will depend on you and how you respond to my letter. Do you want me to come in as a severe disciplinarian who makes you toe the line? Or as a good friend and counselor? Paul isn't hoping for a showdown. He's hoping for hugs. But the choice rests with them. If they repent, he will not bring the heavy hand. If they do not, if they continue in sin, he will bring the heavy hand. In modern vernacular, it better be cleaned up before I get home. You are watching discipleship take place. You are watching discipleship take place. You say, Kyle, I want to make disciples. Well, you're watching it take place. It involves frustration, calling out sin, reaffirming your love for people when they get offended, and if necessary, giving ultimatums if they don't drop their sin. Now, do you want to be a disciple maker? (laughs) Disciples are ultimately made by people, not curriculum. They are not mass-produced, but hand-fashioned one relationship at a time. A long, extended, many times awkward relationship. Paul has humility and confidence. He's bold in helping others grow in Christ. You have to be bold. And beloved, you can't always associate genuine love with a softness of speech. Sometimes love gets stern. We need to hear that again. You cannot always associate genuine love with softness of speech. Sometimes love gets stern. Richard Sibbs used to talk about taking the soul to task. Are you willing to take the soul to task? You see them in sin and you call it out. Like a father... Paul says, stop drinking out of the toilet. Are you willing to call out sin and stay, say, stop drinking the toilet water? You say, yep, got it, Kyle, got it. Since Paul was sarcastic in calling out sin, I can be sarcastic in calling out sin. <laughs> well, no. There's a big difference between Paul's sarcasm and yours. His was inspired. Yours is obnoxious. (laughs) Now, I could stop there. I debated dropping this last application, but I think I'm going to give it. I think I'm going to give it anyway. How Paul parented this church confirms some parental expectations for us. How Paul parented this church confirms some parental expectations for us. And you ask, Kyle, is this, is this a stretch? Is this a stretch? I don't think this is the main point of the passage. If you want the main point, stop listening because I've already given that to you. I don't think this is, I don't think this is the main point. I do think this is an implication that can be drawn from the text. There are some principles for parenting. Paul talked to the church and then he was an example before the church. You say, wouldn't that be enough? It's not enough to talk to your children and just be an example before them. There are times discipline must happen. It was expected in the church that the people would discipline their children, or else this verse about the rod falls on deaf ears. It doesn't make sense. Hands-off parents raise tyrants. Hands-off parents raise tyrants. We had a group here for a while that got on this kick about gentle parenting. We probably need to delete this. We, we had a group here that for a while that had on, they got on this kick about gentle parenting, which, which means they don't discipline their children. And anyone who does is not gentle or loving. And when they left and took their little tyrants with them, we started having a lot less property damage around here. Proverbs speaks to this. You drive out folly from the heart of a child by discipline. I heard a grown man say two weeks ago. I can't get out of my head. A grown man say two weeks ago. He said, as a child, I pushed the limits of talking back to mom when my dad was not there. And then he said, The rod humbled me, and it was good for me. That's a grown man. The rod humbled me, and it was good for me. The assumption, no, I'm just pastoring now. I'm just talking. This probably doesn't have anything to do with the text. We're definitely deleting this. (laughs) The assumption that children will grow up and hate their father is not in the Bible. It may be in pop psychology, but it is not in the scriptures. And the church has been so affected by secular psychology. Now, they don't know that's what it is. They just read some article online and they change their whole life to live by the article. <laughs> but, but don't say anything negative to your children. It will harm them. You just need to be positive and always affirming. And Paul says no. The whole example of Paul discipling the church... That's what we dealt with. The whole example of Paul discipling the church is laid on the foundation of parents disciplining in the home. The whole rod language. I better quit. Let's pray together. Father, help us not to be an arrogant church. Help us to bear the reproach of following your son and to do it gladly. We say with Jeremiah, (laughs) we found your words, we ate them, and they became our joy and delight. Thank you for this good text that fed our souls. We love thee. Amen.